Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1 down to 12, verse 3, and that's on page 1007 in the church Bible if you're using that. And this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, and everlasting word to us that we are called to believe. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundation, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the Exodus and the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was literally special and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, 
for he was looking to the reward by faith. He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our God, we do ask that you would send on your word with great power, accompany it with the the truth and the efficacy of the gospel. We pray, O God, that you would help us to focus and that you would give us that inner heart delight that we are sitting under the very word of the living and true God. We pray That, Lord, we would hear your voice, even as you said, Lord Jesus, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. We pray that you would make us to hear and to believe and to know in truth that you are God. We pray that you would encourage us in our walk of faith as we live out our lives, trusting your son. Lord Jesus, we lift up our voices to you and we pray that you would do a great work of redemption and grace among us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, when I was about 25 years old, I was in France, and I found my way at the end of one of the days that we were in Paris to the footsteps of one of the two great art museums in France, and um, there was less than an hour, there was less of an hour than an hour for us to go in and to look around in this museum and see some of the magnificent works of art, and I'll never forget that we found a tour guide there, 
and we were rushed through the museum as quickly as possible looking at each picture and wanting to stop along the way and wanting to say, what about this shot and what about this picture and what about this collection? And yet we had about 45 minutes to rush through one of the greatest collections of artwork on the planet. And I think that sometimes we can approach Hebrews 11 that way. I think that Hebrews 11, as many have called it, is the great portrait of faith. It's the hall of faith. It is the the place where the writer to the Hebrews is setting out all of these cameos from redemptive history. And if if we just took it as an overview, we would be doing something like I did at that museum, and we would be rushing through, and we would miss so many of the wonderful features, and we wouldn't have time to stop and sit and gaze and learn. You know, it was said of uh, Renoir that he would often go to the Louvre. I did say that right, please. Thank you. I, uh, he would often go to the Louvre, and he would sit, and he, and he learned how to paint by staring at the paintings and trying to copy them. In those days, they would let the, the young artists come into the museums and sit. And I think that what you're going to find is that in the weeks ahead as we go over this chapter, that it's going to be good for us to stop and sit. And yet there's also great value to a hurried walkthrough in an art museum. When you have very little time, you start to notice some of the features. Your eyes move more quickly. You start to gather some of the common themes that each artist uses. You start to see the differences of of the different styles and genres. But one of the things that is noticeable, even when you move through quickly, is that you start to see the themes. And you start to say, I see how Renoir does this and this and this in almost every painting, that there is an underlying theme, and he's pulling together different techniques and different styles and that he has an artistic flavor and in the same way the writer of Hebrews even as we look at this in a sweeping walk through this gallery of faith this morning is going to pull together all of the major themes that he has set out in the book and he's going to bring them to bear and say this is how all of them come together and this is what you need for your faith and this is what's going to help you as you live out the life of faith. Now, it's interesting because Hebrews 11 is intimately connected to Hebrews 10. And if you'll notice back there that what the writer does is he quotes Habakkuk, one of the Old Testament prophets, and he has summed up his whole argument of the first 10 chapters by saying, the just shall live by faith. Those who are accepted by God, those who are righteous in God's sight are righteous because of faith and by faith alone. And yet then they live on Through that faith, they live a life of faith. They don't just believe in order to be justified, and then they don't have to believe anymore, but they continue believing. And the call to perseverance is a call to continue believing. Continue believing. Continue looking unto Jesus. Continue considering him. Continue seeing Jesus. That was the theme back in chapter 2. We don't see everything to come, but we see Jesus. This morning, I want to look at five things with you because I think there are sort of these five layers in this gallery, five layers in this gallery where the writer is really bringing us in and showing how all these things are interconnected on the canvas. And he's going to set before us the Old Testament saints from creation to Christ. And he's going to say, look, all of the things that we've said in this book were all true in the Old Testament. They're not just true in the New Testament. That might be an objection. Well, before Jesus, what did they do? Well, he's going to say they looked to Jesus in faith. He says that in verse 25 and 26. Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ better than the treasures of Egypt. 
And so we're going to see five things this morning. First, we're going to see a description of faith. Then we're going to see the grounds of faith. We're going to see the object of faith. We're going to see the outcome of faith. And then we're going to see the author and finisher of faith. Well, this chapter opens with a description of faith. You might make the mistake of thinking that what the writer is doing is trying to give you a definition of faith. I remember as a younger Christian really uh, getting a hold of the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and the definition of faith that it is a receiving and a resting on Christ alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the Gospels. It's a receiving and a resting. And I remember having discussions with people, and on several occasions, people said, well, that's not what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews doesn't say it's a receiving and resting. He says it's the, it is the, here in verse 1, the assurance or the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what I think we have to understand is the writer of Hebrews is not giving us a definition of faith. He's giving us a description of faith. It would be a little bit like defining what love is, And then explaining what love looks like as it's worked out in your life towards your spouse. We have two very different things. Defining love and then explaining what it looks like. And the writer is really describing for us what saving faith looks like in the lives of God's people. And not just what it looks like in the lives of God's people, but what it looks like in the lives of those who are being tested under fire in tribulation, trial, and persecution. And so the whole chapter, if you went through, you would see if you went back into the pages of the Old Testament that the examples that this masterful artist, theological artist has for us, that all of those examples are examples of difficulty and trial and the people of God pressing through them by faith, the same faith that the Hebrews needed, the same faith in the midst of their persecution and trial, and he's going to climax it with the trial of the cross of our Lord Jesus and how he endured. We'll come to that at the end, but notice that it is faith described, not faith defined. Think that it's interesting, Luther, Martin Luther, the great proponent of justification by faith alone, sometimes made statements about faith that made you wonder if he actually believed justification by faith alone. In one place, Luther says, faith is a busy little thing. Well, that's not entirely fair because we could mistake it and we could think that faith is doing, that faith is getting busy. And faith is not doing in and of itself. It always results in doing. It was J. Gretchen Machen that said, faith is not doing, but it always results in doing. Faith is receiving. But a living faith that receives Christ and holds to the promises of God is an active faith. It's a faith that, that works itself out in obedience to God. And so if you went through this chapter and you summarized each cameo picture, you would read this phrase, by faith, he obeyed. By faith, she obeyed. By faith, he did this and this and this. By faith, she did this and this and this. And so what we're left with is this picture that a living faith, a vital faith, a faith that is really looking to Jesus is a faith that works itself out. It, it's, in its description, it is one that works itself out in obeying God and following him even when we don't see what he's doing and especially when we don't see what he's doing. Notice what the writer does when he gives us this description of faith. He gives us a twofold description there in verse one. He says, first, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And secondly, it's the conviction of things not seen. Now on the surface, this seems like they're saying the same thing. 
that it's the assurance of things hoped for, it's the uh, assurance or conviction of things not seen, and yet what he's doing is he's really separating the believer's experience with the promise of God. Now notice this, that he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The Christian is a person who always hopes. A Christian is a person who always hopes, and let me say this, not in the sort of Hollywood way that you think about hope. And that Hollywood way is often presented in Hollywood pastors and theologians. The hope of the scripture is not this hope that you, if you just have faith, things are going to go great. In fact, in fact, in the New Testament, the hope that these people have is a hope they have when everything's going wrong, humanly speaking. It's a hope of what God has promised to do. It's looking forward. It's not looking at present, and it's not so much looking at past, but it's looking forward. So what the writer is saying here is, at the very beginning, he's telling us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's looking forward to what's to come. It's not saying, if I have enough faith, God will just take away these trials and these difficulties. If I just have enough faith, I have hope that everything's going to work out good. In fact, when you read the cameos in this chapter... The people who have the greatest hope have the hardest lives. The people that have the greatest hope have the hardest lives, and yet they endure as seeing him who is invisible. And then notice what the writer says. He says it is the conviction of things not seen. Now, what faith does, and let me say this as simply as I can this morning, what faith does is it takes things that you don't see and yet are real and it makes them real to you, and you lay hold of them, and you are subjectively assured of them. And everything that the writer's going to talk about in this chapter, including Jesus, you don't see. Whether it was the creation of the world, made out of nothing, the writer's going to say, a person who has faith doesn't try to explain ex nihilo creation from science. That's what he's going to say. A person of faith... You may not like that. This is God's word. By faith, they believed that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made out of things which are visible. And so what faith does is it enables us to say, you know, I may not empirically be able to prove the reality of ex nihilo creation. I may not empirically be able to prove the reality of a place called heaven and a place called hell. I may not be able to prove the empirical reality that Methuselah lived for a thousand years, but the Bible says so, and I, by faith, will believe something I can't see and that nevertheless is true. And we'll come to this in a minute because God has said it's true. And yet the nature of faith is that it lays hold of that which cannot, it cannot see. Now, we have to be careful because I think if we went out on the streets and we polled people today and we said, what is faith? You know, you would get this sort of George Michael, you just got to have faith. This sort of hoping in something. Just, you know, we could attach the word blind in front of it. Blind faith. Lots of people attach the the word leap, leap of faith. You just got to take a leap of faith. To what? To something better. That's not the Bible's picture. That's an uncertainty. That's a a man-made construct. That, That is a hope built on sinking sand. That is, there's no foundation for that. There's no reason to believe that. That's what people who want to deceive themselves into thinking things can get better when they're not trusting in the one who makes them better say and do. 
That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is a faith that rests squarely on God's word and that looks for those things that are real and are true and yet can't be seen. And so all through this, notice what it says about Abraham. It says that Abraham endured as seeing him who is invisible. I'm sorry, Moses, verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And in verse 6, it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God, to the living God, the triune God, must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And so all through this chapter, what it says is that faith sees something to come and, and lays hold of the hope that God has invested in what he said. Listen to this quote. I love this. Um, Thomas Manton, old Puritan. By the way, read Thomas Manton. He's wonderful. Um, faith is the hand and hope is the eye of the soul. Faith is the hand. Hope is the eye of the soul. Faith lays hold upon the promise, and hope looks out after the things promised. I love that. Faith and hope are always working together, and they're always working together in this chapter. Even when Abraham's asked to offer up Isaac, he does not waver in faith and hope. That's remarkable. You know, it's one thing to have people in the business world in which you find yourself not wanting you to talk about Jesus, and it's another thing to have the God who called you to tell you to offer up your only begotten son. It's one thing to fear man and not want to speak up and so lose a witness to Jesus, and it's another thing, it's a completely other thing for God to ask you to go through the trials and the difficulties that he asked the Old Testament saints to go through, and yet in every case, whether it was Abraham with Isaac whether it was Moses and Pharaoh and the reproach and the wrath and the fury that he could have received from the most powerful man on the face of the earth, they endured in faith and hope because faith assured to them that what was before them was real. It's not real because they believed it. We really need to get that. These things are not real because they believed it. They're real, irrespective. You may be somebody that's never trusted Jesus Christ. And, and if I can say this as reverently this morning as possible, it doesn't matter whether you believe or not. It will matter for your well-being on Judgment Day. It will not matter. It doesn't make an iota of difference to Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he did and the reality of what God's word says, whether you believe it or not. And so we see that faith lays hold of things that we can't see and as Peter says about Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, we love. Who, though we do not now see him, yet believing, we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What enabled all of the Old Testament saints to go through those trials was that they endured as seeing him who is invisible. They saw with the eyes of faith the reality of the God who called them. And, and the only way we're going to persevere, and this is what the writer wants you to take away as you go through this gallery, the only way you will persevere is if you have the same saving faith that they had. Now, I think that we need to take seriously that we have more light spiritually, more revelation from God than they had. And yet when we look at the great faith chapter, the Hall of Faith, 
I often think, where are all the great saints today? Where are all the great men and women, including myself? Where are they? Why am I not more like Abraham? Why am I not more like Sarah? Why am I not more like David? Why am I not more like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who said, whether we live or die, it makes no difference. We believe that our God has spoken. And you know what? We have more light and more revelation. And so what the writer does is he brings us to this and he says, look, here's what faith looks like. Here's how it's displayed in all these people that had less than you have. Now run. Run. Live out that life of faith. Secondly, he tells us the grounds of faith, and we've touched on this already. He tells us that faith is always a response to God's word. This is very important. What's wrong with the the statements that you just have to have faith, you have to have some faith that things get better, is that there's no certain foundation behind that hope. Like I said, it's sinking sand. But the believer's foundation is found in God's word. The believer's foundation is that God has spoken I know that God is true. I know that God will do what he says he will do. And even if it looks like everything's contrary to what he has said, I will trust him. And so, and so God says to Abraham, in Isaac, all the nations are going to be blessed. Now kill him. That's the point you need to grapple with this morning. God says to Abraham, all the nations are going to be blessed in your son. I'll give you a son. 13 years later, he gets a son. And then God says, sacrifice him on the altar. And what faith does is it says, God has spoken, God has promised. I believe that God is true. And even though I can't reconcile with what God's saying to me now over here, I will reason, I will take those two things. In Isaac, every nation's going to be blessed. In Jesus, ultimately, the greater Isaac. Offer him up on the altar. And what the writer of Hebrews says is this is what faith does. It latches onto the promises. And and Abraham essentially, and the writer, the Holy Spirit tells us what happened in that man's thinking so many thousands of years ago. He essentially said, if I kill Isaac, God can raise him from the dead and fulfill his promises. That's what faith does. Now, I'm going to ask you this morning, when you think about your profession of faith as a Christian, you say... I profess to be a Christian. I tell others I'm a Christian. I hope you do. What does that mean? What does it mean that you would profess that you have faith? Because if it means anything less than I profess that I believe that what God has promised he is able to do, then that is not saving faith. Saving faith is always grounded on the promises of God. Now, let me say this. There are a lot of people out there, and you can turn on the television and see them almost 24-7, who will say, Faith is a response to what God has promised. God wants good for you. If you believe him, good will come to you. Now, that's true. But that's not true here and now. I mean, Hebrews 11 is live your worst life now and you'll get your best to come. Hebrews 11, if if there was a book jacket on it, it would be live your worst life now by faith. And you're going to get the best life unimaginably better to come. And what was before every Old Testament saint as they went through those trials? The hope of being in a better city, in a better place, with their God, in glory. Has it, has it ever struck you that Abraham never complained? Never said, why do I have to move around in this crummy tent my whole life? Why do I have to, why do I have to 
be out here in the no man's land of a land God promised me, and he never got it, never. Abraham never got it. He got a burial ground for his wife and his son and his son's wife and his grandson and one of his grandson's wives. And that's all Abraham got. Abraham never complained. You know what Gerhardus Voss says? He says, the predestined, the predestined inhabitants of the eternal city can live as kings and priests in tents here and now. The predestined inhabitants of the everlasting city can live as kings and priests in tents in the here and now. And that's what enabled them. The faith that they were going to a better city, that they had something better, that they didn't put their hope and their stock here. And what a futile thing, isn't it? What a futile thing when you see people putting all their hope and trust in the here and now and to know that God can just take that away and that nobody's going to take away the inheritance. And what faith does is it latches onto the promise and it makes that inheritance the driving force. And, and I want to say this because I think in this chapter there is this press on in faith, lay aside sin dynamic. And what we have to grapple with is that seeing how harmful sin is and seeing how damaging sin can be and knowing how much God hates sin is not in and of itself enough to keep you from sin, but that you need a principle of a heavenly and spiritual reality that draws your heart away from that. That's what Hebrews 11 is saying, is that the faith that these men and women had drew their hearts to heaven so that they could endure And so it was grounded on the word of God. Faith is always grounded on the word of God. Let me say this just briefly. You might say, how is that true with Abel? How is that true with Abel? Cain and Abel both come to worship God. If we were there, if we could import ourselves back into redemptive history and we could stand there and watch Cain and Abel worshiping, both were coming to worship, just like everybody in this room is. Both were coming to worship. Both professed to be worshipers of God. Cain brought some vegetation. Abel brought a bloody lamb. And though Genesis doesn't say this, we can be assured that Abel was acting in faith in the God that said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And that Cain was acting in his own human wisdom and self-righteousness and trying to worship God in his own goodness. And the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice to God. And so whatever we do, and here's the big point for you, Whatever we do in our lives here and now ought to be directly proportionate to what God's word says. And our life of faith is only and ever to be a response to what God has spoken. And so we put ourselves under the truth of God, under the promises of God. And then when we go through the hardships and the difficulties, we can say, you know what? I know these are hard. I feel the difficulty and the burden of this. I am weighed down. That's not sinful to be weighed down. I'm weighed down by this, but God has promised that one day he'll raise me from the dead. One day he will give me an inheritance. And that can enable us to have everything around us fall away and fade away because the certainty of what God has for us in glory is steadfast and immovable and grounded on his everlasting word. Let me say this just briefly to you. Get that. Get that. If you... you Don't get anything else from me or other ministers that you listen to. Get this, that faith is always a response to what God has said. And what God has said is the foundation. It is the unmovable rock in which our faith rests 
and lays hold of. That's why faith is more trust. It's more saying, God, you have said this and I believe you. I believe that you have said and will do what you have said. And I'm taking you at your word. And I'm, I'm, in the Hebrew, it's actually roll yourself onto. I am rolling myself onto the Lord to fulfill what he has said to me. Thirdly, I think what we see in this chapter is the object of faith. Now, I've kind of overlapped these things as we've gotten. We had the description of faith. We've had the grounds of faith. The grounds are the promise of God. But the object of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has wrought for us and what is secured for us in him. It's always, it's always the Lord Jesus. And you notice as you go through this chapter that you see how Abraham looked forward to the one to come. Moses looked forward to the coming Christ. That all of the Old Testament saints were looking forward to God's Christ and they were looking forward to the inheritance that was theirs in him. And so what they got, and this is very important, what they understood was that it was not about what they were doing to secure anything, but it was about what God would do And it was about holding on to what God had promised to do in his Christ. So Jesus could say when he stood up before the Jews, he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. Peter, the apostle Peter said that the whole Old Testament, that the spirit of Christ was in them, testifying of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And the writer of Hebrews is telling you that's what they look forward to. They look forward to that fulfillment. And it's interesting. They endured as seeing the coming Christ, even though they didn't know his name would be Jesus and they didn't know everything that we know and they didn't have the fullest measure that we had. They could look past the types and the shadows and the events and they could say, there is a day coming when God will send a redeemer and that redeemer will secure everything for us. And so no matter what our circumstances now, we can endure looking to him. And so the writer of Hebrews is always giving us these phrases. We see Jesus, consider him, looking unto Jesus. That the focus is always a looking forward at a savior that even now we can't see. We look back at him, but he's not here. We don't see him physically, bodily. Jesus isn't here. And we, like them, are called to exercise the same faith in the same Christ and to endure as seeing what he has purchased and merited for us. Now, I think that's enormous. That's enormous. Because if we get that wrong, and if that's not what we're focusing on, then our focus is going to be on something else. And inevitably, that focus is going to be on us. And that focus is going to be on what I'm doing. And then when hardship comes... We're going to sink under the weight of it. And we're going to say, oh God, why me? Why is God doing this? I, was, I think I told you I was watching a show not long ago where uh, the main antagonist in the show was cursing God. And it's okay to tell God, I hate, God, I hate you, God, for this. That's a man who knows nothing of the faith that the, the men and women in the Hall of Faith knew. Because no matter what difficulties they went through, they knew that they had a coming redemption. You know, Job, this is remarkable, by the way. Job suffers almost more than anyone, at least in the Old Testament. And right in the middle of the book of Job, he's lost all of his children. He's lost his health. He's lost his livelihood. He's one of the richest men in the East at that time. And by the way, don't think of 
Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham came from, and don't think of where Job was as some primitive Neanderthal society. I mean, they had a very complex, sophisticated society for the time. Job is the richest man. He loses all of it. He worships God, and in the middle of the book, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job 19.25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, and then, without my flesh, I will see God. What was sustaining Job? Was it a general sense that there was a God? Was it a general sense that things could get better? No. It was, I know that my Redeemer lives. And when God brings the hardships into your life and my life, and from all looks of the scripture, he's going to do that. You know, I, let me interrupt that sentence and tell you this. I've been quoting John Owen a lot. He was the prince of the Puritan theologians. Lost four children and his wife, very young. John Calvin lost many of his children. History, the history of the Christian churches, the great men and women suffered great loss. And when that happens, you better have the right object of faith. It's got to be fixed on Jesus Christ. Because if it's not, everything else is sinking sand. There is no way your soul will sustain it. No way. If God takes your spouse. And perhaps your spouse is the object of your faith. For some people, their spouse, for many people, their spouse and their children are the object of their faith. If God takes your spouse tomorrow, you need the object of your faith to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're not guaranteed anything. The Bible doesn't say, trust me and everything's going to go right. It's trust me when everything goes wrong, you'll be safe. I'll bring you through. And so, fourthly, the writer of Hebrews tells us about the outcome of faith. Now, here's what's interesting. I've, I've mentioned all the difficulty and the trial and the suffering. And then we come to this section in this chapter. Very interesting. Uh, right after verse 32, what more shall I say? You know, time's running out. The sermon's got to get over. Let me hurry up. Tell you about some more saints, and I won't go into everything about them, but you know the stories. And so he says, notice this. Time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David. By the way, the first four of those actually didn't exhibit a lot of great faith. If you go back and read Judges, a lot of them, I mean, Samson's fallen to wine and women. Jephthah's not believing God's word. Barak doesn't want to go to battle, so a woman goes and wins the victory, which is a reproach in those days. They don't look like great men and women of faith, but they're in the great faith chapter. They have saving faith. And notice what he says, the outcome of faith, because here's the principle. You may trust God. Safely, You may trust the word of God. You may hope expectantly for the world to come. You may be trusting in Jesus Christ. And things may go great. Things may go great. Notice this. He tells us about this list of men, and then he says, who through faith conquered kingdoms. Who doesn't want to conquer a kingdom? Sign me up. I want to conquer a kingdom. Probably why I haven't. (laughs) Who through faith conquered kingdoms. Enforced justice. Obtain promises. Stop the mouths of lions. Who doesn't wish you could be Daniel and see the almighty power of God that you're trusting stop lions that should have eaten you in that den? Who wouldn't, wanted to, who wouldn't have wanted to have been Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire and not to be touched when the men putting you in were burned just from the heat outside? And notice this, by faith. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put armies to flight. Women got their dead back. 
Those are the women in the Gospels. That's the woman that Elisha raises her son. These are women of faith that trusted God. They got their dead back. And lest you put too much stock in all of those good things, the writer goes on, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Some were stoned. Some were sawn in two. He's talking about Isaiah the prophet. Tradition says he was sawn in half, burned at the stake, stoned, mocked by faith. And what's the point of all this? The point is the outcome in the here and now ought not affect in any way whether you have faith in Jesus Christ. The circumstances of your life, they ought not affect in any way. It's far too easy, far too easy for us to go to the scriptures and say, if I just had enough faith, those lions wouldn't eat me. And if I just had enough faith, that fire wouldn't burn me. And if I just had enough faith, my bank account wouldn't shrink horribly. And if I just had enough faith, this wouldn't happen. And I think it's also too easy to go, if I just had enough faith, I'm surely going to suffer. I'm surely going to be persecuted. I'm surely going to be stoned. Everybody's going to hate me. My congregation's going to be like three people who don't like me. Surely, it's easy to go to the scriptures and look at outcomes and say, if I have faith then, and the Bible says, look, if you have faith then, yes, maybe prosperity. Yes, maybe suffering, because ultimately, what God does here and now with you is up to God. And there's no promise that you're going to have a great life and subdue kingdoms. And there's no promise that you're going to transform the world. And there's no promise that you're going to be the next Renoir. And there's no promise that you're going to be this amazing accomplished person in your career. There's no promise that everybody's going to look up to you and you're going to change the world. And there's no promise that you're going to get sawn in two. And so what we do is we say, you know what? We walk by faith and we leave the outcome to God. And we know that whether in times of blessing or want, we trust him. Turn to Habakkuk with me, because I, I think this is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. If you hit Nahum... Go right and look at the last verse. Well, verse 17, Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What is is Habakkuk saying? Habakkuk's saying, my trust in God and his redemption is not dependent on whether he causes me to prosper. He may do that. Many times God does that. And we thank him and we praise him. But Habakkuk says, the mindset, and interestingly, Habakkuk's the one that said, the just shall live by faith, that the writer of Hebrews picks up on. One who's living by faith in Christ and in the the coming everlasting inheritance is one who can say, even if there's no produce, even if there's great famine in my life, even if there's great health trials and difficulties and needs, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And so the outcome, while it will be evident to some degree, should not in any way shake or affect whether you have faith. Fourthly, fifthly, last. I think we do ourselves a disservice again by by taking chapter 12 from chapter 11. And it's interesting that really the hall of faith climaxes with Jesus Christ as the man of faith. 
the Savior, was the one who perfectly trusted his Father. The writer of Hebrews is going to say, we run with endurance looking unto him who endured the cross for us, but he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He endured because of the joy set before him. And here's the glorious thing. Just take this away today. As you run the race with endurance, your Lord Jesus has already run it. He is, yes, the author and finisher of your faith. He gives you faith. He establishes you. He keeps you. But he also set the example. He finished the race. He went before you. God, who has promised you everything, has entered into time, has suffered worse than any man, Under the wrath of his father for your sin, he endured the hardest trial and hardship ever. He resisted sin unto bloodshed. He endured it for the joy that was set before him. And what we should get from that is that we too, looking to him, can lay aside sin and can endure trials for the joy set before us. And this is a comfort, isn't it? That the Savior, who is now in heaven waiting for his people to cross that finish line, that Savior has run the race himself. He's run the, and, and you know what? He's run it in a way you'll never run it. He run that race so that you could even enter into the race. He's given you the faith. He's accomplished salvation. He's paid for sin. He's broken the bondage of sin. He's done everything. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. And that means at the end of the day, your faith is dependent on the object of your faith. That it all goes back to Christ and he's the one who sustains us and he's the one that cheers us on. And he says, come to me. And think about this as we close. Think about this. Don't think about Jesus in the days of his flesh saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Think about him as the one who has come, who has conquered, who has won the race, who has atoned for sin, who has finished the work of redemption, who has ascended to the Father, who is standing in glory. And he is saying this morning to you, run. Run to me, come to me, come to me. That Christ today is saying, come to me. I love the words of how firm a foundation, which I'll just close with. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say? What more can he say than to you he has said, to you unto Jesus for refuge have fled? What more? What more can God say to you? He has said everything you need to run this race. Now, two things. One, maybe you've never entered in on that race. Maybe you've been on the sidelines looking on, telling people you're on the team, but you're not actually running. The race is there. Jesus says, run, look to me, run with endurance. The reward is secured already. The inheritance, God is not ashamed to be called the God of his people that trust him and run. If you're running and you're growing tired, there is refreshment and rest in Jesus Christ. There's strength. When you feel the trials of life weighing on you, and they do, and you feel the scorn of the world, and you will run. And you know what? Not only do you have Jesus, you have that whole cloud of witnesses who have witnessed to the faithfulness of God and who are, I believe, looking on, even now in glory, looking on, and they are essentially saying, run like we did. Endure the hardship. Take the reproach. Let me read to you one quote as we close. 
Voss, Gerhardus Voss says, though the world may look down upon us as reactionaries and antiquated people, if we can conscientiously say that we have remained faithful to the principles with God himself stamped with his historic approval in the past, let us derive comfort from the thought that we walk not alone, but are compassed about on every side by an innumerable host of friends who will honor us as God has honored them. There's a day coming when you are going to cross the finish line if you are looking to Jesus, and there will be an innumerable host of those who have gone before you waiting, saying, enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the inheritance. Welcome home. Welcome home. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we need every word and every encouragement. We are weak. We often grow weary in running. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you have run this race for us, that you, the eternal Son of God, has, have entered into time and space and have endured the cross, despising the shame, and have sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give every man and woman and boy and girl in this place the grace to live the life of faith, to have the assurance of things hoped for, to hold fast to your promises even in the midst of great trials and difficulties, and perhaps, our God, in the midst of times of blessing and victory here and now. We pray that you would help us. We pray that you would increase our faith, Lord Jesus. We believe, help our unbelief. We pray these things in your name. Amen.